This is our last paragraph now in First Thessalonians. And Paul turns to prayer as he concludes. The kind of prayer that we saw back in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, where, in fact, he is speaking to you, second person, and yet he's clearly asking God to do something. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. So he's calling upon God to act, but he's addressing you. So it's, it's this bi-directional, it's vertical, asking God to do something, but it's spoken to you. Very powerful form of blessing and prayer. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole, so that's the first request, and here's the second one. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept. There it is. So may he sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that last phrase is to me the most difficult and provocative and important part of the verse, which we'll spend an entire session on next time. So let's get ready for it by looking at the beginning of the verse. May May the God of peace, he has just referred to peace in the preceding paragraph where he said, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So with that ringing in our ears, I want you all to relationally be at peace as you treat the leaders a certain way and the leaders act a certain way so that peace reigns in this community. And now he begins the prayer for them with the God of peace, implying, I think, that this God is the kind of God who not only enjoys peace in himself, but he makes peace. He is able to do what he just exhorted them to do. Be at peace with yourselves. And now he prays, may the God of peace, and then interestingly, what he asked God to do is sanctify them completely. And that sanctification is very relationally oriented on peace. Remember back in chapter 3? May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. This is going to make peace. And for all, insofar as it lies within you, live at peace with all, Paul said, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. So there's the link between love for one another and holiness. So when he says here, May the God of peace make you holy or sanctify you. You can see the connection between how the God of peace works love, which produces holiness and thus establishes peace at the horizontal level. Same thing here in 1 Thessalonians 4. For this is the will of God, 
your sanctification, your holiness, which is what he's praying for in 523, that he, that you may abstain from sexual immorality and that no one transgress or wrong his brother. That would break peace in the community. If you cheat on your brother and intrude yourself upon his marriage, you fail in sanctification and you wreck the peace of the family of God. So there's the connection, as I see it, between the God of peace, who is able to make us do the kinds of things that make for peace. He calls it sanctification here, but sanctification in those other texts that we just looked at, namely 3, 12, and 13, and 4, 3 to 6, produces love between each other, which makes for peace. So he's closing with a prayer that God would do this complete sanctification with a view to loving each other, with a view to maintaining the peace that he is in himself and that he establishes with his people. May he sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept. And I just want to linger here before we turn to this last part next time over spirit, soul, and body. A lot of people argue about whether the human being has two dimensions, two aspects, or whether it has three aspects. This looks like three, but does Paul think this way regularly? For example, Here's 1 Corinthians 3.34. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Nothing mentioned about the soul seems to sum up everything with body and spirit. Here's 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Nothing mentioned about the soul, just seems to be summing everything up in body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion with body and spirit in the fear of God. So, why does Paul deal in three here and only two elsewhere? Consider the meaning of spirit and soul. Here's Paul's use of the word spirit. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you. So, in this verse and in several places, Paul's spirit is that living, spiritual, God related aspect of his non material being which is alive to God. Here it is again in Romans 8.16. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. So our spirit is that dimension of us, that aspect of us, which is alive to the Holy Spirit. So should we Go with those who think of the human being in 
two dimensions or two aspects, namely spirit and body? Or should we insert another kind of reality called the soul? Now, my inclination is to say that Paul didn't use these words carelessly or have a throwaway word here with soul, but that at this point, anyway, Paul really does want to draw attention to three different dimensions. Now, here's, here's what I think he means then, and I'll try to show you why. Body would be the, the mere flesh and bone, right? No, no life to it at all. It's just flesh, like a piece of meat or bone. It's just muscles and, and what is moved by soul understood not as this highest aspect that communes with God, but rather soul understood simply as often in the Old Testament as the life of the body. The heart is beating, the blood is coursing, the muscles are moving, the brain is working, and that may have nothing to do with any communion with God. It's just life of the body. And then, when the Holy Spirit gives awakening to us, this reality is prominent in Paul's thinking. So here's one of the reasons I think that is probably the way he's thinking. That word soul, psuche, is behind this word right here. Here's the adjective form of soul. The natural, the soulish person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, psuchikos here, soulish, means that there is a not yet regenerate, the Spirit is not alive, there's just soul and body. And the person like that can't grasp the things of the Spirit of God. One other text. 1 Corinthians 15.44, when you die, your body is like seed which is sown, a natural body, same word, soulish, a soul body, not a body that's spiritual. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So, Paul has categories for soul or soulishness relating to the body, which is not yet spiritual. So I don't think we should collapse spirit, soul, and body into two pieces here, even though I don't think it's wrong in other places to say that Paul has a conception of the human being as body and spirit, or body and heart. I think his language is very flexible other places, and that we should take each place as it comes, rather than assuming he always speaks in exactly the same terms. So the point so far, and then we ta tackle the, the biggest problem next time, is there is a God of peace. Paul is crying out to him on behalf of the Thessalonians that he would complete the work of their holiness, make it complete, and thus establish the peace that he himself works through that sanctification, and that he would do it for their spirit, for their soul, for their body, that nothing blameworthy would be found in the spirit, or in the soul, or in the body at the coming of the Lord Jesus.